Hello everyone, welcome to episode 59 of Health Unchained. Historic times we are living through these days. We are at war with a biological enemy, a virus that has spread globally, inciting a global pandemic. I want to thank all the frontline healthcare workers who are working directly with potential COVID-19 patients. We need to equip these heroes with personal protective equipment and invest in testing for the public. I won't repeat the many public health recommendations, but you can find them at coronavirus.gov. But I do want to say that the decisions being made now and for the next few months and years will shape the lives of an entire generation. I hope that people are practicing healthy social distancing during these times until we have a better grasp of the situation. In this episode, you will hear from Jim Nasser, CEO of Acor. Jim and his team has built a trusted coronavirus tracking dashboard using Hedera Hashgraph, which is a next-generation decentralized ledger technology. The data is pulled from multiple sources, including the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, where Jim was previously chief software architect. You can find the link to the online tracker in the show notes. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's start the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today we will be talking with Jim Nasser, founder and CEO of Acor, which has developed a coronavirus data tracking tool using decentralized ledger technology called Hashgraph. So Jim, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ray. I've listened to your show before and you did a great job. I appreciate that. Let's jump right in with your you know, career background and what you've done so far so we can get a better understanding of who you are and so our audience also can get that perspective. Yes, definitely. So really, I'm a technologist by profession, um, a software architect. I've been doing that for a long time. Um, I've also, uh, I guess, run a business for a long time and, and perhaps consider myself as an entrepreneur as well. I had a business that I started with a couple of friends in the early 2000s and uh, ran that successfully for about 13, 14 years. That business is still uh, doing well. Without me, I, I exited a few years ago, but my partners from the time, from the original time are still running the business and doing well. And then over the last few years, uh, really, I've been running my own business and had a little detour, if you like, working for the government at the Centers for Disease Control, which I really enjoyed. And now I'm back again, running my own business at Acor, um, which is a software development company with, with my development team. That's awesome. Well, so before Acor and CDC, what was the name of the company that you... Oh, yes, uh, it was called, or it is called Armedia, Armedia. Uh, A-R-M-E-D-I-A. And uh, yes, my partners are still there and doing well. That's awesome. So let's jump right into the topic that everyone's thinking about these days is COVID-19, coronavirus. And um, to me, I see it like a, a tipping point for our economy and our healthcare system. I kind of want to get your perspective on, you know, what's been happening right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is an opinion amongst many others. Obviously, it is a, a really important time for all of us, historically important time. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, what we're seeing is, you know, maybe not entirely unpredictable. I think there have been um, predictions about this. In, in fact, there is a book, um, I forget exactly what the title is, uh, I want to say the next pandemic or something like this. It was written by one of the um, the chief uh, medical uh, directors at the CDC just a few years ago, four or five years ago. And it was really all about predicting the next great pandemic being a variation of influenza. Mm -hmm. So we've more or less seen that. I think, uh, you know, it's a shame that as a society, and I don't mean just us here in the U.S., but in many, many countries, we have been underprepared, um, you know, including myself, right? I think that there are things, some things that probably could have been done and should have been done a lot more proactively. And, and some other things are, are quite novel. And, and obviously, we are learning about them as we go. Um, all to say, you know, I think there is a positive, there is a positive is that, uh, you know, it's helping us understand the gravity of these things that they're, they really do become global, global pandemics. Uh, it's not about any one entity or, or, uh, you know, credit or blame for any one alphabet. I think that there's a, a very large scale um, and multidisciplinary level of, of attention that's required. And I think we're seeing that right now. Right. I do think that, you know, looking at it as an opportunity does help. Um, you know, if we think about this disease, it is affecting not just a few people, but every person. It can affect everyone on the entire globe. So I think that's an opportunity for us to find solutions and come together and realize that we are you know, coming from the same origin here. So if we can help each other instead of trying to hoard resources and take away from other people, I think that is the right path forward for our humanity, really. So what is ECOR? And talk about what you've built on ECOR, allowing people to track all the data points about the coronavirus. Yes. Uh, so really, Acor, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the initial preamble, we're a software development company. However, really, we have, I guess, if you like, three pillars of focus. Uh, first and foremost is usable software. You know, we're focusing on the healthcare space. That's, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that's been my background over the last several years. And, and honestly, I believe there's a dearth of innovation uh, in this space. Some of it is, is because of unnecessary obstacles in the space. Some because I think many innovators perhaps have been scared away by, um, by the space really being a little bit scary from the outside looking in uh, and somewhat difficult to break into. All to say, I think usable software is a huge element of this. And I think, as, as you know, every day we're becoming more of a consumer society. We expect applications to work as they do on our smart devices. So that's really important to us. The second pillar, if you like, is really all about interoperability. Software that by design, you know, is, is geared to work with other software. There, there is no one entity that can do it all. Certainly not in healthcare. Uh, healthcare is, as I'm sure yourself and your audience know, is, is really broken, is very siloed in, in all kinds of ways of, of defining that. So we don't want to add to that problem. So we're building interoperable software and interoperable really defined as um, basically open, what's called open APIs, application programming interfaces to allow our software to talk to other software that are built in the same manner. 
You know, and the third thing really is all about what I fundamentally believe in, and I, I think it's, it's certainly an area that you're focusing on, which is that there is a place for blockchain in healthcare. It's not for every single use case. I'm, I'm not one, you know, that that's, I guess I don't have Pollyanna glasses on and thinking that everything is, is going to be blockchain centric and blockchain oriented. However, I certainly think that there are a number of use cases uh, where blockchain makes sense. And I think that's really the, those three things are the pillars of our business. I'm very much focusing within the healthcare industry. And, and that's really the way we've been growing the business. And I think specifically with uh, with COVID-19 and coronavirus, really it was I guess a few months ago, it was an early experiment uh, really based off of a question and a comment from one of our clients. Uh, and as we got into a little bit more, we realized that, you know, one, uh, there wasn't, there, there were not too many trackers at that time, but certainly there was none where the data could be tracked um, and, and to a, a distributed ledger and, and could be held accountable that you know, somebody could not come to, to me and say, hey, Jim, you and ACOR have manipulated data because we can very clearly show the provenance of the data. Of course, uh, Ray, we are not the primary data collectors, right, that is coming from public health. Uh, however, even along the way through intermediaries, you know, certainly, and, and it's proven many times over, you can manipulate data and, and you, can, you can make it fit your own purposes. And, and we don't believe in that. We believe in, in transparency in that provenance. And that's really kind of in a, in a long-winded circuitous path. This is really where we're at right now. And, and, and I think it's, it's uh, almost every day through feedback we're getting from the public and, and uh, interested third parties, I think it's proving itself out that there is a purpose uh, for blockchain, especially in these kind of situations where the integrity of data is really important. Yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. I think those three pillars, you know, definitely make sense. I would like to also, before we get into the details of ACOR and where the data is coming from and how it is being secured, I just would like to know, when did you first hear about blockchain? Yeah, so I think originally, uh, probably around 2012, 13, something like this. But to be honest, I really didn't do anything about it until about 2015. Well, all of a sudden, uh, it seemed like Bitcoin was becoming a little bit more of a uh, I don't want to say common topic, but but certainly more mainstream than it was before that time. Um, you know, and I think certainly what would happen in um, uh, Cyprus, you know, with their economic kind of breakdown and all of a sudden the, the value of, well, first of all, understanding that there was such a thing as Bitcoin and also its value increasing. I think that that was something that I was aware of. Uh, I did a little bit of mining around 2014, 15 and, and really heavily got into it in 2016 and, and thereafter, primarily as, as a means to, you know, again, improve our solutions in healthcare. I'm, I'm not a speculator in, in cryptocurrency, and certainly there are many people that are far more credible and, and knowledgeable about that space. Uh, I think many ICOs were, were largely noise and, and really didn't help anyone in this space. But I, I truly believe that, that there are some very legitimate use cases for uh, distributed ledger technologies. Yeah. Yeah. Here at Health Unchained, I try to keep away from the speculation and the hype and just focus on what's really getting built out there. Uh, what are the real challenges and opportunities that are you know, being presented in our, in our marketplace? Cool. So I would like to kind of dive into the actual ACOR system and ask you, where is the data coming from that you're generating and what kind of data can someone glean from there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I need to take one step back and just describe to you what, what the technology is. Uh, we have two products. One is called Hashlog, which is really a real-time data visualization engine. And the other one is called Hashload, which is basically a secure data ingestion, uh, data, data and file exchange, all of which has a um, basically a real-time interaction with the Hedera Hashgraph um, blockchain technology or, or DLT technology. So what we've done for uh, specifically for a coronavirus tracker is a combined the two. And, and we have done this for private clients and other use cases too. So what we do is that we essentially ingest data. Um, and the data really is, is uh, I would categorize it into two buckets. One is clinical data. And that clinical data is public data that we're retrieving from the CDC and WHO primarily. Um, you know, and, and we have non-clinical data, which for instance, includes uh, in the US uh, school closures, it includes um, information about relevant clinical trials, it includes um, tweets and, and, uh, and kind of like a newsreel, things like this. So we combine the two, we use hash load to essentially, well, particularly for the medical, for the clinical data, because that is one where it is scientific, it's not just, just a tweet or, or you know, a, a newsreel. For that, we track everything that, that we ingest uh, from the moment that is ingested into uh, our technology, Hashload. We have a basically what we call an event, the create event. From that moment, we have a, an encrypted reference or, or a hash reference uh, of that initial upload uh, onto our system. And then anytime we do anything to that, uh, to that file or that data, whether it's to add metadata, whether it's to um, download it, whether it's to um, just look at it, right? So anytime we even just look at it, we record every one of those transactions in real time in Hedera. Uh, and, and we have that audit log available basically in real time in, in a matter of seconds, uh, including a verification uh, verification of that those transactions on the blockchain, um, on the various blockchain explorers that Hedera has. Uh, so, so then we can prove not only through our application and user interface, what we have done, but we, we also directly and proactively provide a link to third-party explorers that show those same transactions being recorded on Hedera and showing the, the, the fees that we incurred for doing so, showing the essentially the, the if you like, the signature of that transaction and timestamping of that transaction. So again, you don't have to take my word for it. You can independently verify those transactions have, have happened. Obviously, what we don't do and we don't recommend anyone to do in healthcare at this time is to store the entire data payload on, on Hedera or any other blockchain. Um, obviously, in this particular case, the data that we're putting out there is public, so perhaps you could do it and, and there's not as much of a privacy concern. However, for, from a performance perspective and, and really from a longer term kind of privacy pri uh, preservation perspective, we think it's, it's a better practice to have a reference to those transactions, not to store the entire data payload uh, on the blockchain. So that's that's basically the way we go about doing it. Okay, that's helpful. So why use Hedera Hashgraph versus another sort of decentralized ledger technology that might be available? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. Um, we have a number of reasons, Ray. I think fundamentally we believe that our software is real-time software that is the way we like to build all of our software we think that this space needs 
real-time interaction. I think that there are too many technologies and solutions that uh, really are not real-time. The data is, is um, aged and, and in many cases uh, archived public, uh, public data sets and things like this are used for research or for making decisions, uh, whether it's for clinical care or, or for economic um, modeling. And, and really fundamentally, we believe in, in 2020, uh, we're in an era where, where there is real-time data available and we can make that happen in real time. So all to say, uh, that is one of the uh, kind of underpinnings of, of Hedera. It's, it's a, this is, a, I would say, next generation distributed ledger technology. Um, the data is finalized. You get the finality of transactions within a few seconds. Uh, and at, at a very large scale, I think uh, certainly over 10,000 transactions per second uh, and with a finality between three to five seconds. That is effectively a real-time system. So that means that if, if we go ahead and we're ingesting data, as I described to you, um, whether it's for coronavirus tracking or patient data or mortality data, all of which are other examples of what the work we're doing, we're able to verify that transaction or rather the reference to that transaction on a public ledger within a few seconds. That to me is, is one of the, the, if you like, the um, backings behind this idea of, of imputing computational trust. That, that, that we can, you don't have to take my word for it or, or Acor's word for it or any number of, of uh, third parties. You, you can look at the software, you can look at a public ledger with technology that's proven and that's been uh, vetted by, by many brighter people than myself that, that essentially the consensus algorithm does work, that the network does work, and you can rely on that technology and, and essentially the cryptography behind it to prove this, this trust exists as opposed to rely on Acor or Jim and Ray because we're good people. And I think that's fundamentally a different concept than what has been done up to now, which where, as, as you know, for instance, when we use uh, centralized um, servers such as uh, any servers you may deploy in, on a cloud environment or, or if you use Facebook or, or Google or whatever, that really you're, you're relying on one entity uh you know to to basically provide you services but also you're relying on them uh you're trusting them to uh have integrity of of, of what they're doing with the data and to not abuse it to not repurpose it to not sell it to not do two things behind your back without your consent and, and fundamentally i think we're in an era where we can rely on computational trust for that as opposed to one large company right yeah exactly would you trust your keys with a stranger kind of thing i have a question for you so for Hashgraph, who are the different nodes or what are the different nodes that are maintaining that consensus algorithm? Yes, that, that's a very good question. So um, the, the current status basically is the, the governing council members. I think there are 13, 14 at this moment. And there are also some other nodes that are essentially running at what's called the mirror node, uh, which allows you to do um, offload some transactions from the main net and, and be able to report on transactions and things like this. The plan though is, and, and this is obviously not my plan, this is Hedera's plan, mm -hmm. uh, is, is to increase uh, that, uh, you know, those uh, 13 or 14 nodes, which are basically very large companies on, on the council, companies such as Boeing, um, Google, Tata, Wipro, there's a number of them, uh, Swisscom, um, and basically grow that to 39. That's the, the basic uh, kind of premise is, is the 39 council members, but also essentially 
allow really anyone to be a nose is to grow that mm -hmm. uh beyond this this in, in a phased manner uh including a phase release of, of the underlying uh kind of native tokens to to then allow anyone so myself or yourself to be to have a node run run it on the mainnet and uh you know essentially do consensus services and other kinds of services on the mainnet so it is a it is a phase approach that hedera is taking that there's a number of good reasons for that um and, and that's another reason that we, we like it because we think it's a considered approach it's one that hopefully will lead into a much more stable underlying uh, cryptocurrency uh for transactional purposes that's the h bar as opposed to a speculative uh cryptocurrency that becomes a, a really a kind of a holding asset uh, such as bitcoin so so you know we, we kind of like that but uh in, in again in a long-winded manner that's that's the that's how the nodes are set up at this moment how how are the community developing community on hedera how active are they compared to other networks such as ethereum sure uh i mean certainly if, if you look at ethereum that is a much larger um community it, it's been around much longer it has a, a legacy of, of um applications that have been built um so in in that context if you're looking at size certainly ethereum is, is much more uh active however from you know from my perspective in terms of of seeing this technology really come to the market just a couple of years ago and, and evolve uh, it's a very active community that there, there are a lot of very bright people um you know and, and and also i would say loyal people people who who see the bigger and also a much longer term picture and, and not necessarily speculators not not companies who are thinking it's, it's a you know kind of a make a quick buck scenario or have an ico scenario i don't think it's really geared for for the ico crowd to be honest with you i think it's much more um you know i would say steady mainstream business type of of thinking as opposed to just just you know kind of a you know let, let, let's let's make a business where we can you know make some quick buck um you know from my perspective including really if you look at the the composition of the hedera management team it's a more seasoned community people who who really you know if you like have have been kind of beaten up a couple of times uh, and maybe that that really helps us uh to to have a, a long-term um infrastructure and long-term as as hedera calls it layer of trust for the internet so those things are very appealing uh to me and the work that we do in, in healthcare because as i'm sure you are aware you know really the the unit of measurement in terms of time in terms of time in, in healthcare i would say is, is decades it's not not years only not 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 months or weeks uh, things move slowly and, and there's some good reasons for it there's some other reasons that i think are right a man-made but all to say if you're going to rely on a technology platform you really want it to be around you, you don't want it to disappear after a year or two so a couple of days ago, I saw a news article about the digital dollar coming out. Possibly there was a bill related to using a digital dollar and creating e-wallets for every citizen in the U.S. so that they can get their um, stimulus package plan, you know, $1,200 or 1500 whatever it is. And I think that bill was declined or we're not going to have e-wallets. But um, do you think that it could possibly happen in the future where citizens would have digital wallets, we wouldn't have this monetary system that we currently do? Uh, so obviously I'm an enthusiast. <laughs> so, so the answer, my answer is yes. Uh, I am also 
practical and I think that there are some reasons to be cautious. I think the single biggest reason is usability, right? Um, you know, for, I would say for, for anyone other than the, the, you know, technology specialists or, or cryptography and, and cryptocurrency um, enthusiasts, what's currently available is not that usable. Dealing with wallets is not that usable. Dealing with key management is not friendly. Um, and, and that largely prohibits people getting in there, which, which I think also hurts the, the larger community and the larger space, because then there is this, this kind of uh, mystique and myth about cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain and things like this. Whereas I think really blockchain is supposed to be infrastructure, you know, a, a, an underlying utility, such as the water that's, that's flowing through the pipes, you know, in your kitchen that just works and it provides utility, but in of itself is not a thing. In of itself, it just supports and aids, uh, you know, some um, some other specific functions such as a healthcare application or, or tracking the coronavirus data and things like this. So all to say, I think usability is a big issue. I do also see though, just on being positive about things, I do see some, some rapid improvements in terms of consumer oriented applications that either make that key management and um, wallet management a whole lot easier, or as we do with our technology, abstract it. So that the end user doesn't have to worry about, for instance, uh, you know, how do they fill their wallet and how do they pay the, the network provider or Hedera in, in our case, that a third party like us abstracts that piece from them. They deal with, uh, with us in, in a pretty straightforward fiat manner using dollars or, or whatever the currency of choice is. And we essentially take care of, you know, kind of some of those backend things on their behalf. So all to say, you know, I am optimistic it will happen. I don't think it's going to happen that quickly. I wasn't surprised that that bill wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't approved. Uh, I think it, it was innovative, um, you know, though perhaps a little bit early if you're thinking kind of a, from a mass consumption perspective. Fair enough. So, you know, you did have quite some time at the CDC, the Center of Disease Control. Um, what was the most surprising thing you found when you started working there? Yeah, that's a really good question, Ray. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, it was quite humbling from my perspective. I think the CDC, uh, two, two, I mean, there are many things I, I really liked about it and, and two things that really stood out almost immediately. One, uh, it's an outfit that absolutely cares about its mission. It's this mission around uh, public health and, and literally saving lives is, is one that's core to the bone. And, and whether you've been there for, for 30, 40 years as a veteran or director of the agency, or, or whether you know, you're wet behind the ears and you're stepping in day one or two, that's something that, that, that really is, is kind of imputed. Um, the second thing is that it's very much a scientific agency. You know, again, I was humbled with that, right? You know, walking around and, and seeing my colleagues and, and every third one, you know, is, is a PhD or, or, or an MD or has a master's in public health. There are a lot of very, very bright, bright people who are very dedicated to what they do. And I think many people, you know, who think about government agencies don't necessarily have this kind of an impression. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly, I, you know, being honest, I didn't, but, but I was delighted that, that was the case and i think i have enormous respect for all of those people because you know they really really care and they really really know what they're doing i appreciate that 
How do you see blockchain adoption um, both globally and domestically in the healthcare field specifically? How is that developing in your perspective? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I'm, I mean, I see it, I see it as, as um, becoming more or being perceived as being more relevant. Honestly, I've felt for a number of years, it is very relevant. I've publicly spoken about that. Uh, I think in 2016 or 2017, I was interviewed. And even like three years ago, I'd I, I stated that I, I firmly believe that for, for instance, for public health data surveillance, that blockchain is a real play and, and for very good reasons that we could use public blockchain implementations like Hedera or Ethereum, use token economics to incentivize people to contribute, provide good data, and also uh, really use game theory to disincentivize gaming that system, gaming the, the, the data for, for individuals uh, kind of profiteering. So in, in some ways, I think I'm, I'm pleased to see that, that people are seeing that, that, that their, the perception of it being real uh, you know, is being echoed uh, in, in different parts of the world and, and, and by different people. I think a number of analysts like Gartner have also echoed this and said this. Um, I think perhaps the area where I'm a little bit still jaded and disappointed is that I think there are so many, many entities who really ought to invest in this space. Whether you're talking about government agencies or whether you're talking about big pharma or whether you're talking about NGOs, uh, you know, and they're really not doing it. They're, they're doing a little bit of lip service, right? They're, they're, they're making some of the sound bites that they'll make you believe that that's what their intentions are. But from my experience, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're short-term thinking. They're, they're thinking, how am I going to make a buck out of this, you know, in the next three months? Hmm. Um, and, and not really kind of, they're, in many cases, you know, again, I'm jaded by this, but, but I've seen this close at hand that, that there, there's this kind of missing the forest where the trees and, and really putting on an accounting hat as opposed to an innovation hat and a common good hat. And I think those are both wrong. Well, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think they have reasons for doing it that way. I think they're a little bit afraid of regulations and afraid of being innovative because it could hurt them. Uh, we've seen lots of organizations get penalized for some of the innovative work that they're doing in the blockchain space. You know, it's a risky business for sure. And mm -hmm. I think the current infrastructure isn't built for it. In fact, it's built against it, in my view. Um, and my hope is that with all that's going on now, it's shining the light on some of these weak points in our healthcare system, as well as our economy and how our economic structure is, is built. And hopefully we'll be able to grow from that and change from that and adapt and not try to reinforce a broken system because that would be the worst possible scenario. It looks like it's going that direction, unfortunately, from what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wish, you know, people would listen more to you and to other guests that I have on the show and you know anyone that's in the space I think it's really important um, and I'm glad that you're out here talking to me talking to all these people it's very helpful and very important so thank you for doing that um, thank so, you Ray I appreciate those nice feedback yeah no absolutely um, thank you um, I'm going to jump a little back you were talking about some of the pillars of ACOR and I think this is important because you talked about usable software and I agree with you. A lot of the software now that have been around for at least a decade or more um, is not really that usable. So tell me more about what you mean by usable software. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, 
I think the contrast is very, very clear. When you put your work hat on in healthcare, and then you know within a second maybe you get a text message on your phone and, and put your personal hat on, the, the the difference is incredibly stark, right? So on your phone you have something that you know is is pretty usable, is is uh, intuitive. There are not too many steps to take. You know, it's the information is prepared for you in a way that makes sense to you, um, and it's it's more or less the opposite. You know, and in in many healthcare systems, and and to me, honestly, I feel like the underlying reason is that we have at least here in the U.S. So though certainly the U.S. is by no means the only example of this, we have an environment where essentially people are allowed to get away with this. You're you know, you, you could have systems that are built on literally 1970s technology, mumps, you know, a system that's obsolete, you know, and, you know, generation after generation of the technology doesn't really improve underlying things because, frankly, you can get away with it. You know, you, you we have what an environment. Like, get well, away with it. Because what we have, and again, you see this, all of the data backs this up, you know, in the US, we have. We pay the most amount of money for healthcare. It's the least effective. We have data and applications that are siloed. They are designed not to speak to each other, right? Uh, at least largely, though. I think uh, certainly right now with, with the uh, kind of the, the 21st Century Cures Act and, and that being finalized, there's more pressure for interoperability. But all to say, for a long, long time, decades, people and, and people being very few companies have managed to get away and, and really have an incredibly profitable cottage business where, where they're, they're largely building their own fiefdoms at the expense of the patients, at the expense of the rest of us. You know, so, so a few have profit, uh, profiteered and have done very, very well at the, expenses of, at the expenses of almost everybody. And I think, but that's been, you know, again, that, that's been the structure that has allowed them to, to continue doing this. And I think, um, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's a systematic issue of, of essentially non um, or like competing lack of interest and, and allowing that to happen, right? Allowing, for instance, um, healthcare provider, uh, like, uh, for instance, software healthcare providers uh, to, to be able to silo data and, and payers to have an entirely different system that that you know, essentially is, is also their own and is very opaque with no real visibility into it. Um, and then, you know, you, you have government and regulators and then you have patients and all of that and, and, and kind of uh, uh, physicians and providers and all of this really not being an eco, really being essentially disjointed uh, entities that must but really begrudgingly work together as opposed to be connected because the nature of it is that they're all there to serve the patient. Um, so, I, so I think, you know, th there's many historical reasons for this, for this kind of siloed um, setup, but, but we see the results. And I think, unfortunately, in my opinion, we are conditioned, we're numbed to mediocrity. I mean, many people in, in the healthcare industry, healthcare life sciences, very openly, very publicly go around and say, well, the healthcare industry is 20 years behind other industries. And to me, I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, that is true. And that's my perception too, but- It doesn't but, have to but be that way, yeah. It, it, it absolutely must not be that way when you consider that 19% of our gross domestic product is being spent on healthcare, right? 
So, so, you, so you think when you're putting that kind of money and attention behind this, that you should have the very best system, the most efficient, the, the most interconnected, not the, not the exact opposite. So, so, you know, in some ways it really is criminal. And, and unfortunately we see it, you know, I think all of us have stories at the personal level too, not just at the macro. Absolutely. And I think, you know, all these parties, patient, provider, insurance companies, uh, researchers, et cetera, um, they all have a part to play. And I think the patient's input into it has been minimal. And I think that we're not giving the opportunity for patients to interact more with our healthcare system. We generate a lot of data when we go to any clinic or hospital or have a conversation over telehealth. There's a lot of important data that can be used to, you know, improve public health. Just think about this current situation we've got right now with COVID-19. Can't we use game theory in order to incentivize people to report if they're feeling sick, as an example? Um, wouldn't it be great if tests were free? And not only free, you would get paid in a certain sort of, um, you know, I don't want to say token or whatever, but s something where there is incentive for them to get real testing done, you know, without the possibility of having 100 tests for one person, obviously. But you, you get the idea. And obviously, this is easy to talk about, hard to implement. But um, have you thought about certain ways you can start engaging patients more with your platform? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we are actively doing that for a couple of different um, use cases. Um, you know, I think finally, you know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier with the 21st Century Cures Act, essentially becoming final and, and this, this stipulation of removing information blocking from different uh, healthcare providers and, and systems in the mix and allowing the patient to be able to retrieve their information and or uh, nominate their agent to, to be able to do so on their behalf and allow them to, in my opinion, to have transactional consent on, on what's gonna happen with the data. Those are all big things. And, and, and we are, I would say, one of uh, a number of, of folks in this space who are pioneering uh, with this idea and, and act actively working with, um, um, some some patient outfits on on doing this. Um, so so we're often. Can you share some of those companies or organizations you're working with? Uh, well, I don't I don't have permission to publicly talk about some of this, but I'll give you a general idea. We're we're working with one uh, essentially patient advocacy outfit for a rare disease, where um, the patients, in fact, in many cases, openly share within that community, openly share information. Uh, about the disease and the community is, is designed to help them, but they really are getting no benefit from their data, right? Their data is, is very much hidden away within uh, existing uh, electronic health record. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. It was difficult to find the right article to cover given all the COVID-19 posts online in the last couple weeks. So you should check out my online tweets and Telegram community for articles and resources that I think are important. For this news corner, I'd like to make you all aware of three COVID-19 pandemic-related virtual hackathons happening right now or in the very near future. The first one, called Build for COVID-19 Global Online Hackathon, had a submission deadline for March 30th and currently has over 17,000 participants, which is insane for a hackathon. Companies like Amazon, Facebook, Giphy, Microsoft, Pinterest, Salesforce, Slack, TikTok, Twitter, and WeChat are all supporting this hackathon. 
Entrants are given themes and problems sourced from the World Health Organization and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and can design solutions with the technologies of their choice. These themes include ways to support frontline healthcare workers, supporting the elderly and vulnerable members of the community, how to scale telemedicine, solutions for lessening the mental impact of social isolation, alternative learning environments for students, and entertainment. The second hackathon is called the IBM's Call for Code Global Challenge, COVID-19 Fight the Global Pandemic. This hackathon was kicked off on March 20th and will be accepting initial submissions by April 27th. The third hackathon is called COVIDathon Decentralized AI Against COVID-19, and they're accepting submissions from April 1st to June 1st, 2020. The Decentralized AI Alliance, Singularity Net, and Ocean Protocol are leading this hackathon to build privacy-centric solutions for COVID-19 using AI and blockchain technologies. Anyone can apply to these online hackathons. If you are working from home and looking to create something new and meaningful, I encourage you to simply browse through the links in the show notes to learn more about these virtual innovation tournaments. There are opportunities for developers, AI scientists, business people, healthcare professionals, technologists, marketers, legal experts, and psychosocial economists. Thank you to all those who are using their efforts and time to solve some of the problems we face as a society during a pandemic. And now let's get back to our special episode with Jim Nasser, founder and CEO of Acor. What are the biggest misconceptions of blockchain when you speak with various healthcare executives? Yeah, so there are a few common ones. I think one is that it's um, basically a long time away. That is, you know, that they have heard this quote, it doesn't scale, right? That, that's one of the common things. Well, you know, yes, it's interesting, but it doesn't scale. And I think that's such an underqualified statement. Um, you really have to kind of, kind of pry into that, that statement to understand what do people actually mean by scaling, right? Are, are we talking about having millions of transactions? Are we talking about a system where you can essentially develop in a, in a seamless way around it? Are we talking about token economics? There's all kinds of ways in which I think you have to really pry into it. Uh, and also, honestly, it's, it's very relevant to the use case that you're thinking about and, you, and you're considering. So as an example, you know, one of the use cases that we have really kind of, I guess, worked around and proven is that blockchain, particularly next generation blockchain like Hedera, is extremely relevant and usable today for basically data provenance, right? The coronavirus tracker is one example of that, but we have several other clients uh, with whom we're doing this. Uh, so it's a regulated space. Uh, healthcare is regulated. Uh, life sciences, public health, global health, all of this is, is regulated. That there are service level agreements, that there are compliance uh, metrics that, that really you must meet as a business. And, and I'll give you an, another little example. Uh, in the US, uh, in, in three years, in 2023, there is a law called the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, which, which basically means that um, for pharmaceuticals, I'm generalizing, but pharmaceuticals, Every item that is submitted in support of a drug submission must have a digital audit trail, right? Uh, 
that's a really big deal, right? And, and, you know, we know this for a fact. In fact, one of our clients, this is one of their underlying issues, is duplicative and erroneous data or files uh, that they're taking action on, but they don't really know if that is, you know, if, if that information is, is viable information. They don't know if that information is accurate. They don't know if it's the latest. They don't know if somebody along the way has changed it and basically created, you know, if you're like a fork. Mm-hmm. So all of those are real issues with, with a real law for a very large industry. And again, to me, this is where it's a relatively straightforward use case of providing data provenance. You know, we, we can show in a tamper-proof way where you don't have to trust Jim and, and Ray and other people. You, you, can, you can trust the computational, basically the imputed computational trust from, from a, uh, a distributed ledger technology that shows exactly, you know, what has happened at what point in time. And there's a timestamp and it shows who did what without divulging private information. So to me, that's a relatively trivial use case. It's, it's, if you like, it's, it's really next generation auditing. But... It's necessary, right? We're not trying to say that you know we have removed intermediaries or, or, or we have you know created this this massive brand new uh, kind of uh, economic model, but it's not necessary to serve a purpose like what I described because those are the laws and that's what the nature of the business is. So all to say, you know, I, I think that there's this this misperception that we're a long ways away. That that uh, you know things that people have heard that the systems don't scale. They, they really need to be qualified. There there are some, and I think less and less uh, examples where where those statements are accurate. But there are many examples where I think the the just understanding the the business drivers, the business case, that and the vex of that with technology is just not well understood. So you mentioned computational trust. If I was a 10-year-old and I didn't know anything about the, or I, at this point I do, but how would you explain computational trust to a 10-year-old? Yeah, that's a really good question. Ho- hopefully I can, uh, I can put it in that right perspective. So basically, uh, if you go to the idea of trust, really it's, it's uh, this, this concept that you're, interacting you know with some people or some some entities organizations and there's a reason for you to do so maybe you're you know buying some pokemon cards from them right mm-hmm. and if you're gonna put your ten ten dollars in to buy some rare pokemon card you really want to make sure that that guy or gal has that pokemon card and they will send it to you right so we kind of you kind of want to trust them because you don't want to part with your money as a 10 year old uh, and send it off and, and wait for a few days anxiously for that rare card to come to you through the mail. And then all of a sudden you realize it hasn't come or some kind of a, uh, you know, some kind of a shady duplicate or whatever. Right. So then what you do, what we typically do is that we rely on somebody like eBay to do it. So eBay basically is an intermediary between you know, the, the, the two kids buying and selling this card and they take a percentage of, of that deal, right? Uh, but really what we're doing ultimately is, is that we are trusting eBay now. So if, if eBay is not trustworthy or if eBay is, is more interested in their own profits as opposed to, uh, you know, a fair, you know, kind of a fair gain on the transaction, 
Now you're in a situation where you're really, you know, you, you're perhaps going to be compromising uh, certain things such as your privacy or compromising your security, you know, and, and things like this. So, but ultimately, you, you're really, the big, big issue is, you know, um, two, two kids, if you like, are, are doing a trade and they shouldn't really need to trust a third person to do that trade. And I think a lot of times also, it's, it's really about not knowing each other. It's not even a question of trust. It's a question that, you know, if you're buying somebody from somebody uh, else in, in Norway, well, you've never met them, right? I mean, you know, you don't know who they are, if they even exist, or if, if it's some kind of a chatbot. Mm -hmm. So the, the concept of, of distributed ledger technologies, you know, is really all about, I think, fundamentally, this first question of, do you need to have trust, you know, in this trade of information, this trade of Pokemon cards, in this case, with the 10-year-olds? And if the answer is yes, because you really don't know them, they're not your cousin or whatever, then how do you do it? And I think that's where the idea of, of a blockchain or, or, or uh, distributed ledger technology comes in. However, what happens if this, this trust really comes from, you know, essentially three people getting together, setting up a network, and those three people being the leaders, and then everybody else essentially not having a real say or transparency into what they're doing, or the ultimate leader having veto rights, or, or the ultimate leader being able to essentially resequence transactions for whatever reasons. And I think that to me is, is where we're at with, with certain kinds of, of blockchain implementations where, you know, basically, and, and, and this is kind of like the quote enterprise where, where you have a leader node, where essentially, ultimately, there's still one or more parties that, you know, have that power and have the ability to essentially be the administrator, you know, of the ledger. Right. There's some good for that. But I think to me that that good is outweighed by by the potential to lose that trust. So mm -hmm. what I believe in is essentially a public model where the transaction, again, not all of the details of the transaction, not not every piece of the private uh, uh, kind of uh, or private details of the transaction, but but basically references to, to transactions are sorted, time stamped and essentially in a very fair way paid for transactionally on a public ledger and what you're really relying on is is the the software you're relying on cryptography and and the consensus algorithm and and the the proven software to provide that that trust or what i think of as computational trust so that's really how i differentiate you know between trust in general you know kind of trust if you like using a more limited uh deployment of of blockchain through um basically very specific nodes and a leader versus a much more of a public transparent model. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, I like the example of the Pokemon cards. I was thinking also and you're talking that um, you can also have the Pokemon card manufacturer sign their cards as they are manufacturing them, uh, digitally proving their provenance or their origin so that when you are going and buying some cards, you can always look back on the public blockchain to verify that these cards are real and not uh, fraudulent cards. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another kind of use case. That's actually a really good example because, you know, <laughs> again, I can, you I can attest for drugs too, for pharmaceuticals. That's what you were talking about. No well. doubt for all kinds of things, but I can definitely attest to this Pokemon example. It was a real one, my own kids, you know, back in the day where, you know, spending a lot of, you know, hard earned money, you know, doing, refereeing or whatever on this stuff because that's what they enjoy playing but then 
after two weeks, I get something from wherever, China, Hong Kong, some, some, some far away place. And it's not the manufacturers, right? You can clearly tell, mm-hmm. you know, that the quality isn't there and then, then they have no recourse, right? And, and having that, that kind of provability, uh, that accountability, I think is huge. And, and I think that's what we want. I think that's what, and, and again, we, not to bring everything back to the coronavirus and the current pandemic, but, but you can clearly see this is what the community wants, information that they can trust. Uh, and not just because it's coming from like one large company. Agreed. So let's get to that. So you have this software now available online for people to check and they can view some statistics and what's going on with the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, right now I'm looking at it. There's over 400,000 confirmed cases, over 18,000 deaths. This is as of March 24th, 2020, um, and 107,000 have recovered. So the rest are still um, you know, sick. So this data is coming from the WHO, the CDC, and a few other organizations aren't these organizations are we supposed to trust them i'm not saying we shouldn't i do but um is what you're doing with hedera hashgraph are you verifying that none of their numbers have been changed after they've initially posted it is that the benefit here yeah so you know it's a really good question uh, i think let me kind of go back to your first statement are we supposed to trust them uh, i would say yes but not blindly mm-hmm. right uh, again, we saw this in the beginning of this COVID-19 um, situation where, where there was significant amount of information blocking. There was significant amount of misinformation. There was really overt action at the time by the Chinese government to play down that there was anything happening. Yet, from all kinds of sources, from, from people, in fact, even us in the early days, we were hearing from directly through our, our form from people in China and uh, Hong Kong telling us that that data was just not right, that their kind of empirical evidence was much higher numbers. Wow. You know, so I would say what we really want to say in, in this context and the work we're doing and other people like us is um, the CDC, the WHO uh, and other agencies can go down this path where their primary data collection or even if they happen to be secondary, whoever happens to the primary data collector, that that data is originated or, or can have some kind of a origination on the blockchain, right? Because the closer you get to primary data collection, for instance, from a hospital in Wuhan or, or a hospital in New York or whatever, the better, the, the one, the more likely that the data is not manipulated along the way. But two, the more likely the data is, is actually really relevant because it's, it's close to real time, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have provenance around that, and if you can vet that through, again, through cryptography and through game theory, you can much more quickly ascertain good data, quicker get to the citizens and take decisions as opposed to wait and wait for intermediaries, including uh, well, you know, kind of well-intentioned public health outfits like WHO and CDC to do so. So I think that's, that's a really important concept. It's one that, you know, it's beyond obviously what we're doing in this moment, but we think that this is a template for, for these things going forward. In terms of what we do, really, since we're not the primary data collectors for the clinical data, all we're saying is from the moment we touch it, we can prove using computational trust and, and using a real-time audit exactly what we have done with it. We, we can prove you know, how we, you know, where we uploaded it, you know, who we like, what person has touched it, 
what specifically they have done, et cetera, et cetera. So if somebody says, well, well, Jim, you know, how do we know you guys haven't manipulated because you have a, a profiteering reason? We can prove what we have done. So, but obviously that's, that's just sure. a, you know, that, that is really kind of the tail end of the story, right? I think that the, the much more meaningful narrative is to get, uh, get to primary data collection. And we can do this not only with people, we could do it with systems, we could do it with, with um, internet of, of, uh, of, of technologies and, and um, uh, you know, for, with connected medical devices, software as a device, all these technologies through APIs, through trusted APIs, can provide basically in-stream real-time data for which there could be a provenance on a public ledger. Right, you can have a, a test kit, a digital test kit. I mean, I'm thinking in the future here, maybe, maybe not for COVID-19, but you can... Uh, you know, do a swab, it does the test, it provides a result, I'm oversimplifying here, but then yeah. that result immediately gets uh, uploaded to mm -hmm. your system and that's exact primary data. The challenge there is making sure you don't have one person um, just continuously doing tests and you know skewing the data one way or the other. So having, you know, understanding how we can ensure that the data is still trustable. It's still going to be a challenge, especially with the Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think over time with different computer vision technologies, we can get there. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's that's really fascinating. And I'm looking at your site right now. There are over there's 32 clinical trials right now for COVID-19 mm -hmm. from this data source, at least. Mainly in China. But you actually raise a very interesting uh, kind of. Uh, I guess subject and one I just wanted to poke into sure. a little bit. So, so this this idea of could be used blockchain for essentially rapid testing or, or using a, if you like, a connected phone app and 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 a, uh, some kind of an at home test that then could be sent to, for instance, a Quest Lab or whatever, and and uh, have the results come back to you, not necessarily in real time, but in a, in a you know timely manner because the tests are not that quick. Mm -hmm. That is literally what we're doing at this moment. We are working, my company, Acor, plus a coalition of, of other folks, including some very, very uh, credible um, and, and really highly uh, expert medical professionals uh, you know, through the Mayo Clinic and, and some other uh, kind of partners. We are actively, literally as we speak, working on this awesome. very much for the reasons that I think you described, but also the fact that clearly, as, as we know, you know, on this day, uh, our provider system, you know, is, is just overburdened, uh, overburdened, right? There are way too many people who have needs, uh, people with who have urgent needs um, that, that really are, are occupying our resources and, and really over occupying our resources. We're, we're you know, we're in an under capacity situation, uh, rather we're in an over capacity situation, uh, beg, uh, beg your pardon. Um, so there, there needs to be some alternatives for other people as well. And, and that's very much this idea of how can we basically have a, a, a connected diagnostics tool using, using a phone and an app? How can we using that potentially do some, some basic diagnostics using a questionnaire? Uh, how can we record all of the relevant information on a blockchain so it doesn't, doesn't change or, or it doesn't get manipulated or, or doesn't erroneously get overwritten or whatever. Uh, and then how can we then from there, you know, if there is a, a possibility of a positive case, deliver a physical, uh, if you like, uh, rapid test cassette, have an at-home swap, have that sent to a, a lab and have the results sent back to the phone. And those are literally things we're doing at this moment. And we think, um, obviously, based on what's happening right now, that that's a 
an incredibly important thing to do. And, and, and the, the, the quicker we can get that to people's hands, the better, because uh, you know, clearly the situation we have right now is, is really quite scary, particularly in certain regions uh, in the U.S. Absolutely. It is um, quite a dire situation we're all in. Uh, so I have a question about the platform and the technology. What are the failure points of this system and the way it's set up now? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously with any technology, there are, there are certain areas of immaturity and, and, you know, certain areas where you would consider it to be anti-fragile and, and, uh, or rather fragile and you really want it to be anti-fragile and be able to scale. Uh, I mean, I would say for the, the work we're doing, it really ultimately you know, comes down comes down to a couple of things. You know, it comes down to, you know, essentially, especially this, this rapid uh, test I was describing, is it um, usable at very large scale, right? Because for something to be usable with, you know, five or 10 or, or 10,000 users, five to 10,000 users or 20,000 users, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you have millions of users, that's an entirely different thing. Sure. Right. So, so that remains to be proven is, is um, our technology that we have built. And I, I don't mean just the head therapies. I mean, the full technology, right. Including the, 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 the user facing elements. Are those things really going to kind of scale for very large amount of, of users and very large amount of active usage. Right. So that's certainly one. And I think that that's one where we're, we're obviously pressure testing as we go, but, but, you know, we are, actively building our software in a way that if something breaks, uh, we're able to isolate the fault and recover that element without breaking everything, right? So just being some, making some smart decisions. Uh, I think the other part of all of this is really the human angle, the administration angle, right? Because, you know, we're not at a stage where, where the, the technologies that we're building are fully automated and, and autonomous. There's there are, there are definitely handoffs, you know, uh, for instance, as what we were describing with going from our, our phone application to the, the physical delivery of, of a of a rapid test and then delivery of that to um, through logistics to uh, to um, laboratories. So basically the handoff between software and, and humans and making sure they work and making sure that we capture essentially analog interactions correctly. Uh, and then we record those on a blockchain in the correct way. All those things are, are certainly areas where I, I, I can definitely see things breaking, either because you know it's, it's really early and we haven't truly pressure tested it or really even proven the, the underlying algorithms correctly, or because of the scale, because of the sheer numbers that we have to deal with. Yeah, that's very interesting. I agree with you. Right now, there are lots of possible issues with the analog transfers of information that we still have in place. Um, it'll be, I think it's its own industry itself, figuring all out all those different uh, nuances. You know, if you think about the f food supply chain industry, how are you sure that this does not have E. coli? Like, mm -hmm. did you do a scan on every single piece of lettuce? Um, things like that. So that'll be very interesting. It is. And, and, you know, Ray, I think this is, again, unfortunately, it's a larger concept and one that we could probably spend another yeah. hour and a half on a different podcast. This really gets into token economics and game yeah. theory, right? Because, yeah, yes, you could have the most beautiful and optimized supply chain, and and you could you could put the relevant steps uh, and the references on a blockchain. But if, if a human mm -hmm. has to scan a QR code, and if a human has to basically verify that certain shipments 
uh, on a certain container and they have, they have left the port at the, the time they're supposed to and, and all of those things. Ultimately, that becomes analog. And, and no matter what you've set up digitally, you still are relying on, on humans or other systems in an, analog, in an analog way to do their job and to not gain the system for their own purposes. And I think that's a tricky thing. That's where we really have to kind of, again, just be right. practical and say, all right, what is the psychology behind this? How do we incentivize these people to be good actors? And how do we incentivize, or rather, disincentivize the uh, the bad actors and, and really provide a mechanism for the good actors to weed out the bad actors? And it's really not trivial. It's, it's a case-by-case thing. Uh, it gets into really kind of talking economics and, and, and really thinking thinking through the business model in a very deep way, understanding human psychology, understanding what kind of tools and technology you have at your hand, but but it's not trivial. And it's, it's one that I think, you know, if we're going to quote, um, basically remove intermediaries and, and become automate, uh, you know, industries and things like this, these great visions, we really have to think through these kind of incentives versus disincent- uh, disincentives uh, and the game theory behind them, you know, cooperative versus competitive game theory and, and all of that is really a very rich topic yeah and i think that's the coolest thing about blockchain that it's not all about the coders or it's not all about you know a technology it's really everyone has to get involved here like you mentioned psychologists economists uh lawyers so there's a huge um field growing now in smart contracts and i think that's going to be increasingly more important as it develops and you know i was thinking about amazon right now they are offering to hire over 100,000 people to help in their warehouses because of the higher demand of people doing online shopping. Well, what happens when Amazon can use robots to do that work? Where are all those people going to go, right? So there's a lot to think about. There's a lot of ethical considerations. Um, I think that we eventually will be living in a decentralized world um, for the better, Mm -hmm. um, probably for the worst for a little bit of time. Uh, But I think we'll get to a good point once we you know, realize our commonalities, which is, is really important. And I try to stress that with every one of my episodes is that we are in this together. <laughs> yes, no, um, no, no doubt. And I think really what we're seeing these days is, is actually, you know, again, in a very sad, uh, you know, and, and really unnecessary, um, I guess, episode. It, it is positive in, in the sense that you can see the community come together. You can yeah. see people wanting to see the common good, wanting to see the bigger picture, wanting to see their role in a much, much bigger situation that they have to contribute to, right? We're not, we can't just be passengers. Agreed. Um, I do have a few more questions. So how is data sharing being redefined in our society as we deal with this pandemic? Uh, You know, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a derivative of this pandemic, uh, you know, I, I think certainly the pandemic makes us all think about it more uh, and be aware, a lot more aware. I think actually is, is at least in the U.S., um, the, the bigger kind of, um, the, the bigger opportunity is, is around this, this removal of information blocking for patient records. And mm-hmm. our collective ability to to raise awareness about that and to make people really think hey you know what there is a reason for me to to care about my health data there's a reason for me to provide consent it isn't right for one large technology company to basically 
in collusion with with a with a um, health network to have access to 50 million patient records and to do whatever they want to do without me having or my physician having any information about it or having any kind of incentives to participate. Those are not right things. And I think to me, perhaps the, the pandemic and, and this confluence of, of the, the 21st Century Cures Act becoming law and, and more awareness and, and the mainstream media talking about these things and people like, like you and I talking about these things, perhaps that's the big trigger, right? That, that becomes, again, not today. I don't think it's going to happen that quickly, but maybe ho hopefully over the next you know, five to 10 years. That's the trigger where you know, we as, as patients understand the value of our data, but also understand that we have some rights, right. that, that we, have a, we have a right to provide transactional consent, not, not a consent that you, you write on a piece of paper that essentially gives carte blanche access to you know, a, a provider and any one of their, their kind of uh, third party entities to do whatever they want to do under the, this banner of, of a you know, of a, of a BAA. I think that's uh, you know, kind of being this, this protected entity. Um, so I think those are, those, to me, I'm, I'm optimistic that um, this awareness kind of en masse, this opportunity is, is happening, unfortunately, for some bad reasons and sad reasons, but, but nonetheless, there's a, there's a longer term picture to it. What do you believe in that most people would disagree with? Um, I think I kind of said a little bit at the beginning or at some point during, during our conversation, Ray, I, I believe that uh, there is a, a real concrete place for public blockchain implementation for, for public distributed ledger technologies. I think many people in this space, particularly in, in the quote healthcare, healthcare blockchain space, either believe or they, they've been led to believe that really it's, it's it's the realm of the quote enterprise private blockchain, um, and fundamentally, I don't believe that's the case. I think fundamentally, if if your kind of end all of a of a blockchain solution is a quote enterprise private blockchain with with seven known entities, you know, and one leader, uh, honestly, I don't know how much of, a, of an improvement that is over having a portal or, or relying on Amazon or Google to do what they're doing and then you being the product. I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, I understand. But, but all to say, I think there is a tremendous value uh, and a real value and an immediate value in having a public distributed ledger and using that for what is really good at. So not necessarily for smart contracts. And, and again, we could talk an hour and a half just on smart contracts because fundamentally I'm not a big believer in that either. But, but, but hmm. using it okay. essentially for finality of discrete transactions and those transactions referencing some internal system or whatever, but, but referencing activities that happen around sharing of data, exchange of data, or, or any kind of transactions on data. So this, I, I really firmly believe in that. And again, as, as you have heard and you have seen, that's the way we have gone about implementing our solutions. Tell me what your favorite book is. Oh, we're changing gears here. All right. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, there's a few. I really like The Power of the Habit or The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. You know, I think it's one of those books that I've actually read like six, seven times and I've, I've highlighted things all over it. And, and, you know, honestly, I could kind of go back and read it over again. And I just find it so useful and practical and, and just interesting. It's, it's well written, but it's, it's really like to me, it's, it's really relevant. 
And I know you're an entrepreneur, but if it's not too personal, what would you consider your biggest mistake? <laughs> yeah. How long do we have? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, being an entrepreneur or at least being somebody who, I, I guess, believes that, that, that we need to push the edge, you, you're going to make a lot. Oh, I have made a lot of mistakes, things that, you know, that you in retrospect realize, you know, maybe could have been done differently, whatever. You know, I think the biggest thing is this idea of, of kind of, you know, trying to uh, make a pick thing, you know, because um, I think ultimately you you exhaust yourself and annoy the pig. Uh, that's yeah. obviously not my saying. I, I forget who said that originally, but it's been around. And I think I've done that a few times. And and you know, and it could be under the the, the guise of, of blockchain. It could be under the guise of of you know, if you're like consumer oriented healthcare applications or whatever. But you know, there are some people, and unfortunately, some of those people are so-called KOLs. Uh, they're key opinion leaders in this healthcare space that you know they've made their money in a different way they they have made their their money and, and a lot of it you know and, and i've seen amount of it basically by having systems that are not interoperable by having systems that are or, or solutions and thinking that's opaque and and, and you know and, and uh, not transparent and not real time uh and i think they have a lot of incentives to keep it that way and I, I've, I've had situations where i've you know do you think that's try a to swim upstream with the, that that case, and it, you know, it's uh, it. Uh, let's put it this way: I'd have been better served putting my effort somewhere else. Got you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, so that was the mistake that you didn't spend enough time building something that's not transparent, or, or no, incredible? no, just 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 spending too much energy with people and, and situations. Oh, with those kind where, of people. Understood. Yeah, yeah. Where we're honestly trying to they, change their mind, align differently, and, and you know, okay. I, it is what it is. I mean, I mean you know, where people have have their own set of incentives. Got it. How are you occupying yourself in self quarantine now? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, Ray, I, I am, and I'm, I'm really not exaggerating one bit as busy as I've ever been, I, like I described to you, this, this work that we're doing um, on rapid testing and, and COVID-19, it, it is almost 24 seven. And not just for myself, I'm, I'm just a member of the team, this larger team, but uh, it, it's very, very important. We, we are working um, extremely hard, people around the world. So, uh, you know, I, right now my days are, are 16 hour work days, you know, which, which I guess in some ways is, you know, I don't really, I, we're, in, we're in quarantine, lockdown, etc. So I guess being very productive with work is, is a good thing at this moment, though. It would be nice to go out for a run or something, but uh, but right now we have high priorities. Fair, fair. Um, tell me a little bit about the team and then, you know, let's wrap this up. I think I'll give you a final word. I just want to thank you again for joining. This has been a great conversation, I think, and I think it's really important and timely for sure. So I hope the audience also think so as well sure thanks so much ray I, I appreciate it yeah i mean the team that's working on, on the stuff that i've described is you know is, is my team everybody at acor our whole team is is at it you know and, and at very uh maximum intensity um you know we do have other clients but this is by far the biggest thing we're doing at this moment but but we have distributed teams uh, in india we have uh distributed mm -hmm. development teams in uh in europe particularly in london um we have folks in in canada we, we have a number of folks on the West Coast in California and in the LA area in particular. Uh, we have a team in Serbia. Uh, there's a 
pretty large distributed development team. We have business people, marketing people. And as I mentioned too, as part of our coalition, we have very, very credible, highly um, like world-renowned uh, physicians, epidemiologists working on, on the medical side of things. Um, so yeah, there, there's all kinds of things going on in, in a multidisciplinary team. That's fantastic. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I know you're doing really great work, so thank you for all you're doing. Any final words for the audience? Any, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I just, uh, I'm easy to reach on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, Jane Asser is, is the handle. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I love hearing from uh, from your audience or from the, the general public. I think that especially at this time, people have so much good feedback, insights, things that are practical, relevant, um, you know, and, and as much as we can, as much as we're able to absorb, we'd like to, to listen to that and, and uh, improve what we do. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.